0: So yes, welcome everybody. I'd like to welcome you to this uh,
1: Arts and Society Forum and this is the sixth in the series which we inadvertently started just as lockdown happened. So the first in the series was um, uh, due to be a, 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 you know, in the flesh event and we had to change it to um, a Zoom event, and that was my first experience of using Zoom. And uh, this is, I think, the sixth. All the other uh, events have been recorded, so you can check out the Academy of Ideas website and um, get uh, a recording of that, of, you know, you can check out the previous events, and they have all been really, really interesting. The Arts and Society Forum is part of the Academy of Ideas, and um, the Academy of Ideas is, uh, if, if you are unfamiliar with it, um, is an organization that runs debates and discussions and usually runs the annual Battle of Ideas, which unfortunately is not happening uh, this year now for obvious reasons, but we hopefully hope we'll be back early next year if uh, things begin to um, kind of open up a bit more than they have already. Uh, The Academy of Ideas has been running um, throughout this crisis uh, and operates very much on a shoestring. And as you know, this event is free, but if you um, can uh, give uh, a donation, uh, that would be very kind and very much appreciated. So Alistair is going to post a link, or he has posted a link, uh, and and if you can click on that link at some point and make a donation, that would be fantastic. So the point of this series is really to get artists, invite artists to talk about their inspiration as artists, how they've developed themselves as artists by, in a way, standing on the shoulders of giants. And we've never had a music session before. I'm afraid I'm a, a complete ignoramus when it comes to music. Um, I enjoy listening to it on the whole, but I don't really have not, never really kind of bothered or try to really educate myself around it. So, uh, this really is a kind of a, a first for me, and I'm really, really delighted. I was so delighted when Gabriella agreed to um, do this uh, because she is a, a very um, accomplished cellist. She's got uh, several albums under her belt and tours the world. Uh, playing in orchestras, ensembles, and as a soloist. And I think she is a very special guest, so I'm delighted that she was um, willing to come and talk to us. And she's chosen to talk about two um, inspirational composers, uh, one which I, and I'm sure you, are very familiar with, J.S. Bach, and the other uh, is somebody i would never heard of before, Helmut Lachman. Lachenmann, rather, um, who's still alive uh, and living in Germany, I believe. And um, I have to say, I've listened to the music that uh, Gabriella uh, pointed me to, and I find it extremely challenging. Um, and I can't say I find it terribly enjoyable, whereas I love listening to Bach. Now, I think um, Gabriella is the perfect person to uh, kind of maybe change my mind, if not yours, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing what she has to say. So Gabriella will talk for about uh, 45 minutes or so, and she's going to do a couple of short performances in the course of that. And after that, I'll open um, the uh, opportunity for people to make their own contributions, or ask questions, or challenges, or or whatever. And um, if there's anybody else uh, who knows about music, it'd be great to hear what you have to say. If anybody feels completely um, bemused by it, but wants to ask a question, uh, you're also very welcome. Don't feel shy. This really is a kind of uh, an opportunity for people as ignorant as me to talk, as well as those who know almost as much as, as Gabriella. Um, and I'll talk about the I'm assuming probably most people are familiar with the Zoom process at this stage, but I will kind of um, remind people just before we open it up, the conversation up. So, without further ado, I will hand over to Gabriella. Thank you very much. I'll just put you on um, highlight speaker, spotlight video. Yes. Okay, you. wow,
2: such a shock. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Wendy, um, for asking me to speak to you all tonight and for um, everyone, actually, at the Academy of Ideas. I've um, been very fortunate to have been introduced to Claire Fox, gosh, coming up for, I think, 10, 15 years ago, maybe, when I first got involved. And I've always been a, a thinking musician, um, someone that enjoys debate, and presenting new things to people. And I feel musicians, sometimes we can be our own worst enemies because we always feel very much more comfortable playing and not talking. In fact, when I sometimes do my concerts, I, I sort of enjoy the talking because I think once I've done that, then I'll get to do the playing, which I feel much more comfortable with. Um, so over the years, and thanks to Claire as well, for asking me to talk so many times on panels. I've grown more confident and realised that the best way um, is to have discussion. And I suppose that's got a lot to do with the thinking behind the two composers I've chosen. Um, I think so many of us, and I know I've had this debate with Claire, you know, a few times, um, many thinking people feel much more comfortable with new literature new art, new food, everything new, but music is still a little bit behind in people's choices. And I would love to have that discussion. Um, I think that will naturally come out of this, is to have the discussion why, you know, why, as you said in your introduction, Wendy, why are you an iconomous? You know, it's an interesting point because um, I think so many people feel more comfortable as you say, you know with new theater and and i 'm interested to know um, what we can do better too so i 'm going to do a mixture of ways to communicate with you tonight i 've got my, my trusty notes and i 'll use them, and I will talk from the heart as well about my experiences with both composers and i 'll play um, a few things will take adjusting um, i 'll have to tune the cello in a special way so Um, that might be a time to have a (laughs) quick cup of coffee and then I'll have to move the computer so you'll be able to see the full cello. So I'm just going to start anyway um, with my notes and talking about uh, sort of a background about me as a musician and why I've chosen these composers. So as you know, as Wendy's described, I'm a performer um, first and foremost and my plan to speak to you uh, about music is to keep it as practical as possible. So this is not going to be a strict music history lesson, but I'm obviously going to put things into some context. I want to share with you a bit about my background, um, which will lead on then nicely to why Bach and Lackerman have inspired me in my career the most. I've always been drawn to the old and the new, ever since I started formal music lessons to around five years old. My childhood may have had a part of this, as my mother was an amateur harpsichord player, and I took very naturally to the recorder when I was about seven years old. She was also a busy dentist, as was my father, so playing Baroque duets quickly became a way I could guarantee some time spent with her. Alongside this, I was lucky to have teachers early on that encouraged me to create my own music, and that's really important that rarely happens. Even when I only knew the basic open strings on the cello, my teachers encouraged me to write down my own tunes using the different combinations of them. The moment for me though, which was truly life-changing, and I suppose changed the course of my musical direction, was at 10 years old. And I was given tickets um, by my parents to see the world premiere of Gawain by Harrison Birtwistle at the Royal Opera House, quite a strange present thinking back. I was already a student at Cheatham School of Music and had earlier switched from the recorder to the cello as my principal study, but up to that moment I'd only really known Baroque, Romantic and Classical music, the Western canon. This opera had a musical language which totally blew me away. The dissonance spoke to me like nothing had quite done before. It was totally thrilling to me to not quite know what was coming next. I certainly didn't understand anything that was going on on stage, but being so young, it never crossed my mind that it didn't matter if I did or I didn't. In some ways, I feel being exposed to contemporary music so young was the greatest gift I was given musically as I was so open-minded and unshockable. When I got back to school, I started exploring other living composers and joined the Sixth Form Analysis Club, where each week our teacher would bring us a different 20th century piece for us to pour over. I didn't have too much to contribute myself being the youngest by about seven years, but I enjoyed listening to the conversation and that musicians such as the conductor Daniel Harding the pianist and composer Hugh Watkins, were also members of the club and they encouraged me to be there. After some words from the composer Judith Weir to the head of composition after she gave me a very short lesson when I was about 12 years old, I started having my own composition lessons and enjoyed being an active member of the department. I quickly realised, however, that I gained much more from the process of writing music more from even hearing it performed publicly. So I would have been a useless composer myself, and enjoyed being the student who composers could rely on to perform their works in the safe knowledge that I took their music seriously. And I wouldn't be too judgmental if they made rookie errors, like writing notes I didn't have the strings for. And that, I must say, happens so much in my industry. I've seen performers treat composers really, really terribly and put people off for life. And I think, again, having my background as having some formal training in composition myself, which really benefited me because I was able to sort of show the composers how to do something better. I mean, not musically, but technically, and how to write something for the instrument. So that has really been an important skill for me to have learned. So we can fast forward now to 1999 and I started my studies at the Royal College of Music, joint principal still with composition. In 2005 my French cello teacher Jérôme Pano, asked me to play a recital for him that thinking back I don't think he wanted particularly to do. It was to play Helmut Lackerman's solo cello piece Pression at his famous birthday concert at the concert house in Berlin. As a young cellist who, by this point, hoped to make a career from playing contemporary music, this was a huge, huge deal for me. Lachmann, to give you some history now, he's the eldest statesman of contemporary music in Germany. He grew up in the generation after Stockhausen. He was born in Stuttgart after the end of the Second World War, and he started singing in his local church choir when he was 11 showing an early talent for music he was already composing in his teens. He was the first private student of the Italian composer Luigi Nono in Venice from 1958 to 1960. He also worked briefly at the University of Ghent in 1975, composing his only published tape piece during that period. But therefore, this is the interesting thing about Lackermann, he focused basically on instrumental music. The brutality of his music led Francisco Estevez to compare his work to the ba- paintings of Francis Bacon. He wanted to find something new. So this is when it starts getting a bit technical. Um, Lackerman has referred to his compositions as musique concrete instrumentale. The phrase Music Concrete comes from Pierre Schaeffer, who was one of the pioneers of the electroacoustic music in the 1940s, and it implies a musical language that embraces the entire sound world, made accessible through unconventional playing techniques. According to the composer, this is music in which the sound events are chosen and organised so that the manner in which they are generated Is at least as important as the resultant acoustic qualities themselves. Consequently, those qualities such as timbre and volume do not produce sounds for their own sake, but describe or denote the concrete situation. So listening, you can hear the conditions under which a sound or noise action is carried out. You hear what materials and energies are involved And what resistance is encountered. And don't worry, I will demonstrate this in a moment. His music is therefore primarily derived from the most basic of sounds, which through process of amplification serve as a basis for extended works. His scores place enormous demands on performers due to the plethora of techniques that he has invented for wind, brass and string instruments. After a recent premiere, of the Berlin, with the Berlin Philharmonic of his piece, My Melodies, the composer gleefully remarked, everyone will be waiting for a melody. I will, of course, disappoint them all. In reality, these melodies are not conventional tunes at all. So why would a cellist like me, who spent all my life learning how to play melody, so- suddenly get confronted with a score, which has no conventional notation at all. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you. Now, here we go. Okay. Okay. I hope everyone can see this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so we have my, my favorites. And when I first got the score from my teacher, this is what I saw. I can tell you it's pretty overwhelming to have to learn this. I needed to go to the source. As you can see, the manuscript, as detailed as it is, does not really come off the page until either the composer or another cellist who's learnt it from the composer describes it to you. Back in the early noughties, there was no YouTube performance or explanation. So I traveled to Austria Studied the piece with the principal cello of the famous German new music group, the Ensemble Moderne. And his name, the, the cellist who I studied with, was called Mikhail Kasper. Lackerman was due to be the composer in residence for this course, so my timing was immaculate. So I learned the piece and it took me a solid week. Um, it's about eight minutes. Um, and it has four pages, um, which you place either side when you're learning it. So you have four on one, and then you have four on the other side. Um, But before I start going into the details of this, I wanted to give you a bit more about the history and the historical context of the piece. Pression epitomises musique concrète instrumentale, that phrase I talked about earlier. The sounds are experienced as the immediate results of their production rather than, as the composer describes, as mediated by a historically loaded space of listening conventions and metaphorical meaning. So, Lackerman at the time had come from this German tradition and he'd also studied in Italy. So, he was at Darmstadt in the summer and then he was studying with Nono. And as anyone from this time, he wanted to, for so many reasons, reinvent and create his own sound world. To try and describe it, Clearing, he focuses on the subtlety of the transformation of Tombra, from pitch notes to pitchless textual explanation. And again, I'm going to demonstrate this. But it reaches the place that electroacoustic and electronic music can never achieve. One of the means invented to provoke this kind of liberated perception is Lackerman's complete redesign of musical notation, which famously avoids references to conventional staff notation in favour of this tablature, which you can see here. And so it's telling me physically and musically what to do. You can see the hand there. You can see the diagram of the cello. The focus on the performer and his or her body is also signalled by the work's subtitle for a cellist, not for cello, and by Lackman's stipulation to the preface to the 1972 edition that this piece has to be played by memory so that the view of the performer on stage is not obscured by lots of music stands, as you often see with lots of contemporary music recitals. So, I'm going to talk a, bit, a little bit now, without my historical notes about what it was really like to work with him. Firstly, I can say that I was unbelievably intimidated by him. Um, if you've listened to some of the music and some of it as you can see it it leaves the listeners this kind of impression as some people naturally think with some modern art well we can do it at home anyone can do this but Lackerman is the absolute example of a composer who can who knows every breath, every note, everything. His ears are quite honestly, the best ears I've ever worked with professionally. And the other thing, as I'll show you with this picture, there he is, he can play what he's written. So there he is demonstrating one of his pieces, one of his techniques to um, Arditti from the Arditti Quartet. And it's, um, it was a really interesting process for me because this piece, Pression, is, is incredibly famous in our repertoire because it has these challenges which you don't really learn when you're learning the cello conventionally. So I was asked by Jerome to go to Berlin and obviously I'd spent the week learning this piece with Mikhail. And then on the last day, Helmut turned up and I'd learned the choreography of the piece. And I remember the first time we went through it. And I really learned it pretty well. And he told me to stop, stop playing, and listen. And listen to what I could hear in the room. And even that moment of when I could just hear the buzzing of the light the noises of the wind outside, I realised that this man heard the, world, heard the world in a totally different way than I did. And that, this is the bit that I found interesting about him, was that his, his concept of sound and beauty and music was just on a totally different level than so many people who write B flat, press it with your first finger, put the bow down and play it. And that's essentially what I'm I'm trained to do. And here was this man making me explore this instrument, which I'd studied ever since I was nine years old for hours a day. And I was suddenly approaching this instrument in a totally different way and was experiencing you know, which in my long technical spiel before, was this idea of music concrete. But to work with him, even that as a performer, started changing my perceptions. And I think this is the interesting thing about Helmut, is when he goes to the Berlin Philharmonic, first of all, they're very nervous about their instruments. They will only ever play his music on second instruments. But Simon Rattle, who's another massive champion of Helmut's music, can see the musicality and how he can draw that from the players. But it first takes you to have a whole new relationship with the instrument and with sound. So before I start playing, um, I'll tell you the story of the the ballet and his birthday concert. So Presion was... um, was written in the late '60s, and um, this piece, which I was involved with, involved a group of um, naked dancers I think there were six of them. Um, and they were a French company, and the principal dancer was a man called Boris Chamatz. and he's you know known in um, contemporary dance as sort of being the bad boy. And I went over and I'd spent, you know, a day with Helmut in Germany, going through the piece and learning it. And then I went to Berlin to perform it with these dancers for his birthday concert. And it was one of, you know, I was must have been 25. It was one of my first big concerts I'd, I'd done. And I um, went for the first rehearsal with the dancers. And I remember this, unbelievably vicious woman who worked for the dance company she I I'd, I'd, you know played it as m- much as I could have done as you know as well as I could have done and she um I had the music on either side because you know my teacher Jerome had never told me that it should have been memorized and I remember She looked at me and she said, well, my dancers, they don't have scores. Why have you got the score? And my heart sunk and I was naive. I was nervous, I was young. And I got very tearful and she was testing me. And she said, you know, you need to memorize this piece and you've got 24 hours. So I um, went out and found a room at the top of the concert house in Berlin. I bumped into players from the Ensemble Modern who were doing the same festival. And I said to them, you know, they've just told me to memorize it and that wasn't part of the contract. And they all said to me, they all would have been in their sort of fifties and sixties. Say no, this is totally impossible. This piece is hard enough, you know. And I think there was just the sort of arrogance of youth. And I, I just said, no, nope, I'm going to show her. And to memorise the piece, I think, took about 17 hours. And I was just up in this room and barely yet, didn't do anything but learnt the exact choreography. Um, This is probably a good time to show you some of the the techniques involved and to give you an idea of what I had to contend with before I tell you the punchline. So I'm gonna go back onto the first slide. So, the first thing that you can see at the top is the word scordatura, which is, a, you know, I don't know how to do the pointer, but you can see some conventional notes. And I think actually they're the only conventional notes in the whole piece. So, the first note on, on the cello, we have our fifths A, D, G, and C. So the A then becomes an F. the D becomes a D-flat, the G is thankfully the same and then the bottom note is this amazing low A-flat. So now the cello sounds like this (laughs) totally changes the sound world of the whole instrument but this is the thing with Lachman you're not going to necessarily tell that these are the new notes but what he's done because he knows these instruments so well knows that what he's going to achieve with the different techniques is a very slight difference of timbre of silence he never likes using the word noise that's a that's a band word so it's not noise, it's sound, it's um, pitch. He sees, he hears the world as we would hear the conventional notes to make that clearer. So to give you an idea of how this piece starts, I'm gonna push this back to get a better view of the cello. So steg, we start on the bridge. And it's, just, it's very hard to, to play because it's so quiet. I'm not sure how long, how it will come about on the, compu- on the computer sound, but I'll do my best. So the first is just the sound of just breath, which is created like this. And then the left hand goes up. now we just have two fingers making a noise, which is very hard to hear, of the pressure, because pression obviously is from pressure, of the strings going up and down the fingerboard. And at this point, I've still got my bow on the bridge, and then here gets gets interesting with the left hand. And now I'm to use my thumb to flick. And now when it goes dark, the darker um, on the last um, uh, system, you'll see there's a thicker black line and that means to use the nails. And then the thumb, nails, and then the bridge sound. So I'll put this together. that's how the piece starts. Um, It's again difficult to to, uh, fully understand, to experience it over the computer but you get this idea and if I look to the next slide, what he does is then he moves on to the bow. So after this So now we have a whole new textural quality of where the bow comes in. And it's the hair, the wood, which gives a very different sound. And here we start using these textures. This is where it comes interesting because of course, now I've changed the whole note, notes of the cello, this will sound very different if I have my usual Western fifths. So this technique's actually created by me putting pressure on the strings with my chin, and then, and playing with the bow so the hair is really tight and then can use the tension of the string which i'm pressing so you can hear the pitch changing a little bit now me talking through it isn't putting it into a musical context but if you've got to imagine in a performance it's quite dramatic So already you can see that the, the drama, the choreography of how I'm playing is a totally different experience for the performer and the listener. There is an encore, oh, sorry, a cadenza, he describes in this piece. And he explained it to me as an audience. It, he sort of said, okay, I want it to sound like a pig being murdered and you can either play this for 60 seconds or three minutes. So I'll give you an idea of the cadenza. So this is played on the bottom part of the bridge. Um, quite, Quite an unusual sound But already this music concrete is, um, you can understand what he's meaning. It's this otherworldly, this contact that we don't ever explore as a performer or a listener. There's another amazing part where he actually makes you totally reinvent the pressure. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna put the cello and put the bow on the string and then the thumb goes underneath the strings. So normally with a cello, obviously the pressure is a downward motion. And here he creates a notation by releasing. So that's our basic sound. And then to create the notes... <laughs> That took a long time to learn because actually if you're so used to playing and then suddenly you, can, you make a sound by releasing so that motion is a totally different technique and there's also a part where you have to play underneath the strings with the bow so we're also now using the body of the instrument so we have this sound kind of scraping, rubbing sound, and then this one, which I love. So we're using a ricochet, like a very quick release of the bow. And now he makes it very complicated. So we have the string sound, the bridge sound, and then the belly of the instrument sound and not only do we have the belly sound as you can hear it's getting higher the further up the, the, the bow we go so the combination of those three sounds again took a long time to learn you an idea of some of those techniques. And then the, my favourite sound is on the, the tailpiece, which sounds like this. That was very hard to get right with him, because he knows that with the kind of grip, that the, the pressure has to be right, because otherwise it can make a horrible squeaking sound, which he really didn't like, which is kind of ironic. So the, the whole piece um, uses all of these different, beautiful techniques. And if you can see in some of the score, that like this is the part with the, um, on the bottom system, we have this technique where... So it shows when you're meant to release the string as well. Um, There's one note in the whole piece which is conventionally written, and it's a D flat, which has to be played flat. So he, he changes that feeling of dissonance of, what something feels like and it is uncomfortable. Um, So anyway I um, learnt this piece off by heart and then I performed it with the dancers and I got fired. I got fired because um, after all of that they thought it looked better to have a man play it because that's how they saw it aesthetically. So I was meant to play it in Vienna the next week. They, they got another guy to, to play it and, you know, and you realise actually the relationship between dance and music has always been a fractious one because of those things. For us, we don't really think about what we look like or the aesthetics, but for her, for this company, they wanted to have a man, I presume fully clothed, amongst these dancers. So it was a, quite a traumatic time. But the beauty of it was, is that there we are together. I had this relationship with Helmut after that and understood um, uh, what what it was like to work with such an important composer at the beginning of my career. Now, to give you a little bit more background about Helmut, um, up until recently, he was the chair of composition at Harvard. And I remember him moaning to me when we worked together, about how people were trying to recreate his music. And there was all these bad versions of And I'm sure that might come up in our discussion afterwards. Bad versions of things we suffer from deeply in music because we're not quite sure what the good things are because it's been created. We're in a melting pot, this is exciting. But bad Lachemann I'm afraid is really bad. And the difference between him and how he thinks, his aesthetics about music. It's like um, a great abstract painter who can draw really well. I would say it's a similar comparison you can make. And I remember him telling me that he disappointed his students at Harvard so much because he's basically a guru for them. And they asked who his favorite composer was. And do you know what he said? Morricone. And they were furious. They couldn't understand where this huge figure could like slushy, romantic, Italian film music. But again, that that for me interested me greatly um, to him as a very musical artist. And again, it is hard music to appreciate on CD. And to be honest, it wouldn't be necessarily something I would listen to at home. But to see this music live, and as a solo instrument, as a solo explanation of a work, uh, or as a big orchestra, all or playing these techniques, it totally makes you have a relationship, a new relationship with sound. So i put the cello down for a second. It's also important to recognize that this piece and its sound world as an example of a politically motivated liberation of perception. Other than that, you don't actually need the baggage that Lackerman has with his ideas or ideologies to appreciate the thrill of the music, as I was saying. Ultimately, he wants to achieve what so many composers want to achieve, which is beauty and transcendence. So how can I get to Bach after that? Well, what you've just witnessed is a series of scrapes, scratches, squeaks. And if you're prepared to find the same beauty in that, especially that tailpiece sound, which I hope you can get some idea of, you can compare this to the solo cello suites by Bach. In fact, I believe after Lackerman you will hear Bach quite differently, as you will with all music, because there you were thinking about every grain, the contact with the bow, the breath, It all becomes part of the experience. It would be strange and not impossible for me to not overstate the influence of Bach's work for solo strings, which raised the bar on what could be achieved with a single instrument, both musically and technically. And again, this is the way I can safely link the two composers. Lackerman had a similar quest to expand performers' sonic palettes. He's a huge admirer of Bach and Morricone, and even added a contemporary third part written as a companion to Bach's two-part inventions. I'll always remember when I was finally allowed to play my first Bach cello suite. They'd always been treated as a carrot dangled in front of me by my teacher. Every time we would discuss what I was going to learn next, I was hoping that my months of subtle hints about how much I loved the sweets and Bath were going to be heard. But instead, I was always told, maybe next term. My teacher was actually wise. Some of the earliest sweets are not some of the most technically demanding for the cello. But it needs a certain maturity. As I briefly described on the introduction to this talk, there was a long gap between completion and rediscovery as concert music by Casals, who recorded them in 1936. To give you a sense of the time, that was only 60 years before I started my own journey with the suites. This recording and Casals' discovery shifted everyone's relationship with them. Suddenly, there was an expectation that every cellist should know them and record them, more often, more than once. The great cellist, one of my personal favourite cellists and thinkers, Yo-Yo Ma, announced in his World Tour back in 2018 that Bach's cello suites have been my constant musical companions. For six decades, they've given me sustenance, comfort and joy during times of stress, celebration and loss. Over the years, I came to believe that in creating these works, Bach played the part of a musician-scientist, expressing precise observations about nature and human nature. And I personally will never forget Yo-Yo Ma's performance of the entire suites at the Albert Hall. I was stuck in this box at the back. And I remember the beautiful thing for me was that he didn't take himself too seriously. He was smiling in between the suites. He was laughing, he was making jokes with the audience. And it's a huge physical feat to play all of these suites straight after each other with a small break. But it was truly one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen. So to give you a little bit of history and some context, we think the suites were composed between 1717 and 1723, when Bach served as the Kapellmeister in Curtin. As usual in Baroque music, the suites start with a prelude and then based around Baroque dance types. So we've got the six movements, which are the Prelude, Allemande, Courante, Sarabande, and then either we have two Minuets or two Bourées or two Gavottes and a final Jig. My, so my personal journey with the suites really, after studying them quite young, um, I did my Masters at the Royal College of Music, and I decided to take this relationship with them further and make my own edition of the First Suite in G Major. No autograph copy exists of the Suites, which rules out an Urtec's performing edition. The closest we have to work from is his second wife, Anna Madalena's Bach's manuscript. And over the years, historians have said she was not always the most reliable with her placement of articulation. And there were some massive gaps in terms of misdynamics and even a few wrong notes, sadly. His favourite copyist was Kellner and perhaps he, his edition was closer to what Bach might have meant. So armed with a blank copy, with nothing added, I went through all the available sources and the most important editions over the last 200 years and came up with my own for personal use only. What I learned from this is how the suites have evolved so much without any involvement at all from Bach. Because of the lack of original manuscripts, And then the recent discovery that he might not have written it at all for a conventional cello, but this new instrument, which is new today because Lutherans have come up with a reconstruction. is called a das which was held more like a violin. Cello technique has evolved so much too, and simply playing these pieces as concert pieces and not studies where with studies, you see, when we practice studies, all we're caref- carefully uh, working on is if semiquavers, fast notes are even and our, our bowing arm is good and we're not thinking about these pieces in a musical level. And for 200 years, that is what these pieces were being used for by cellists. They would never really left the house. So maybe this is a good time now to play you something. So I'm gonna reach in my cello Okay. <laughs> price to pay. of the first suite, to give you an idea of... Um... Actually, I want to give you a little example first. Uh, uh, as I said... There's... Gabby,
1: yes. Gabby, could you um, unshare your screen so we can see you okay,
2: bigger? Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. There we go. Stop share. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so to give you an idea of the um, The the difference of when I said how we would have heard these pieces over history, over time. So the idea of a study, if any of those of you who play musical instruments would understand studies as kind of the boring bit that we do in practice, and the first suite is written straight semiquavers. If you look at the score, you see just the semi quavers, so. so to play that as a study would sound something like this going for it and I'm just working on my bones so I'm going and making sure it's really nice and even. So in Bach's time maybe, maybe they would have been played slightly more like that as a study of a uh, uh, you know but people that love Bach like I'm sure many of you do, that's not how you play Bach It's about how you communicate, how he speaks about the world and you're not going to get that emotion if you play. So conventionally we have to put, we have to allow Bach's music and his humanity to come through the music. So I'll play you the piece as I interpret it and how I feel it and my own bowing that I put on over the years and um, which suits me. So I'm sorry the cellist's not particularly happy after helmet, but let's see what I can do.
0: Um. (音楽) ¶¶
1: just fabulous. Thank you so much, (laughs) thank
2: you. So as a lover of old and new, Bach's music makes me rather excited. We have to look back historically when we learn this music, but as performers living today we also have the responsibility to look to the future. If any music can take reinvention of the wheel, I believe the Bach cello suites can They, for me, share the same innovation that Presion does. After studying the suites historically and playing a good half of them, I was asked to work with the artist Idris Khan in 2006 on his first film. I'm going to share just a couple of images. So here's Idris. So if people aren't familiar with Idris's art, he's a British based artist um, and he's in, he's in London, sorry. Uh, his art has been described um, as it draws from a diverse range of cultural sources, including literature, history, art, music and religion to create densely layered imagery that is both abstract and figurative and addresses narratives of history the cumulative experience and the metaphysical collapse of time into single moments. His photographs or scans originate from secondary source material, for example, the Quran or the Beethoven sonatas. Idris's father was a Muslim and it was his idea for Idris to photograph every single page of the Quran. So I want to just talk, just sort of end really about Idris and how... Bach, for me, was rediscovered again. So I was contacted when I was just leaving the Royal College um, by someone who told me that Idris had just finished his Masters at the Royal College of Arts and that Saatchi had basically bought him up and he was going to be the next best thing. And I was told that he wanted to do a project with a cellist and deconstruct and reconstruct the Bach cello suites And as I said, his photography is, he uses secondary source material. So at this point, I think he'd done his piece of the Quran and he'd overlaid the photographs. So it looks almost like a blurred copy, photocopy and you could see the letters and the symbols kind of poking through. And he did the same with the Beethoven piano sonatas. He'd photographed them all and you could see the blurred imagery of the notes just poking through again. So with the cello suites, this was his first film that he'd ever done, um, which involved music and the ph- photography and movement. And so we spent weeks together selecting which parts of which suite um, he was going to um, sort of manipulate. The one stipulation he had was that he wanted to use every single movement so that's a lot of, lot of repertoire. So we spent a lot of the time kind of picking out a few bars, a few fragments here and there. And what then developed was this very, very beautiful six minute film. To give you a tiny image, is that you can see that with the cello, he'd overlaid the photographs of me moving. And what he did was, is that we recorded all the um, sound in a separate studio and for me playing it live and what he would do and it's hard to, um, I don't know if maybe some people have seen this film um, but what he did was he uh, overlaid the music of the Bach so you have it going from the abstract where you have every layer on top of each other so it sounds even more dissonant than Lackerman, to coming out of and more focused of what you'd have just heard now. So what Idris was doing, which I found so fascinating, was taking the Bach to a different place. So you heard this cacophony of sound, but then you heard something very familiar, something that made you feel at ease. And he did that with the imagery too. So you can see the sort of blurred image of my bow, and it would then focus into just, you know, you didn't see my face or anything, it was just the hands he was focusing on. And again, the whole process, um, I must say, (laughs) slightly discreetly, um, but not. Um, So this was Idris's sort of beginning of his career. And I think I charged him not very much money for my time. And then a couple of years later, people started realizing that Idris was getting quite famous and I was being spotted in Momo, and New York and all sorts of places. And he's obviously had an incredible career um, since. He's still represented by Victoria Miro. And actually it was at the time in the art world as well, you know, they still have money, but it was even more money. And I remember, you know, going to this gallery and anything that Idris wanted, there was always an amazing lunch included. I was just quite different from from the contemporary music world. But I remember playing the Lackerman actually in front of the artists that all came to the private view of the film. And how unimpressed, not unimpressed, but how underwhelmed they were. Because, of course, they were always looking ahead. And this music for them was in the 60s, so it was actually quite old-fashioned. And I played it then at the Royal College of Music where I think I had two walkouts during my performance. So that always then started making me more interested in the art world about how we can collaborate more. And um, so that was my experience of working uh, in a contemporary way with Bach. Um, So it leads me to talking about, as I say, my relationship with him today. And we as cellists are still very short of solo cello repertoire. I'm constantly myself commissioning composers and trying my best to expand the solo cello repertoire as much as I can, because as you can see, as I've demonstrated, there's so much that can be done with this instrument. I've personally loved playing Bach's music in the most conventional and the most unconventional ways, like with Idris, because for me, he paved the way for everything to come and he's never spoken to me as much as a composer as he has done these last few months. It's not often we truly feel absence anymore. Since the internet, cheap flights and all the other resources we have, we can always be with people instantly. So very, very briefly to finish and to touch on about lockdown. So my experience as being a musician in lockdown, And I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's relevant to this. It's about being solo. Just me again, no colleagues. And speaking personally for a moment, I've been the only adult that I've shared space with for over 12, 13 weeks at one point. Bach was no stranger to hardship. His family knew war, violence, tragedy, famine and plague. In times of trouble, solitude music is a remedy and it is a companion and pleasure. I've had so much pleasure from simply playing these sweets again during lockdown just for the sake of playing them. They've comforted me again in such a fresh and new way and that's why I'm just being so happy to share my experiences
1: with you tonight so thank you so much. Gabrielle. Gabriella, that was just fantastic. I'm going to see if I can. How do I unmute? Unmute all. Uh, what happened? Mm. Oh, hang on. Unmute all. Sorry, I should know better about how to manage the. Um... <coughs> yes, let's just give Gabriella a round of applause. Oh. <laughs> That, that really was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, it was very... Um... Yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> I should know better how to use the Zoom now than I do, but anyway. Uh, yeah, that was just, just um, amazing, Gabriella. I mean, I, I felt like I learned so much from what you were saying, and uh, it really has sort of, I mean, I think you know, it makes me want to learn more, which I guess is one of your objectives, get ignoramuses, (laughs) trying to, you know, to study a bit more and learn a bit more about this. One of the things, I've got a few hands coming up, so what I suggest we do, just to give you a rest, is I'll ask a quick question that I have, and then I've got um, a couple of other people wanting to ask questions, and I'll let them all make comments, and I'll let them speak. And, um, and then you can come back whenever you want and feel like you've got something to say. Just so just sort of like, you know, uh, wave at me or something and I'll, yeah. Um, so my question really is uh, this question, I think I mentioned it to when we were talking before about the, um, the kind of emotional response when you listen to Bach which is sort of like, you know, you when you just played now, you know, sort of, you're, you're, the back of your neck, you know, my neck prickled and, and that kind of thing. And I sort of felt kind of sheer joy at listening, um, particularly to your interpretation, actually, and and also feeling like I could, I could hear the difference between what you were saying about a study and and somebody's much more personal approach to a, a piece. And then somebody like Lackenman, you know, he, it does require a sort of like almost like a a willingness not to take pleasure in music, to almost like say, okay, I'm going to try and understand what he's trying to do. But I wonder whether that's what he or you as a performer would intend, or whether there is an intention there to try and generate uh, emotion or, or some kind of more emotional response in, in the playing and, and actually, interestingly, there was little a mini chat going on earlier on when you were talking about Lachman where somebody was sort of saying, you know, it gives me a headache and somebody else said, oh, I love it, it's so raw. And so that kind of very different kind of response. So, um, I mean, if you want to respond now, that's fine, but I would suggest that I ask the other two people to speak and then you can, yeah? So, okay, so um, I've got somebody, yeah, uh, Anne, Ollie, or, um,
3: Hi, or Harley? Harley. Harley here is gonna speak right. for now at least. Um, thanks, that was brilliant. Thank you, Gabriella, that was uh, such a treat for that, to uh, see that performance, hear the performance, um, and also for your, uh, everything you've said about your, your thinking and where you've got, got to so far. Um, uh, but I, I'm everything that Wendy, I love music, but everything that Wendy just said about uh, la- um, Lackerman, I feel about Bach, I come from, I'm much more comfortable on the avant-garde, experimental, noisy, jazzy type side of things. That's, you know, I, that, I, that I'm completely uh, fine with, but, but classical music's a bit of a closed book to me. Um, but just so, on the Lackerman, um I, you know I, I, I really liked it, uh, and um, the, especially the bit that sounds like an asthmatic lion um, the, to go with the squealing pig uh, that that bit I think that could just go on for an hour and i 'd be very happy, but I imagine having listened to what you've said you 'd be in some pain after that but um, the I did wonder though i 'm um, used to a lot of experimental music where people are not you know composition is not part of it, people just sort of explore, you know, abuse the instruments and do things with them in similar ways, but they do it in a much more freeform way, and I don't think they're all bad lackermans, uh, as you described, a lot of them are very good, and they do fantastic things with it, and and, and so what what was the importance of it being a composition? I mean, clearly things happen one after the other, and, um, you know, in a precise way, I've heard a few versions of it now, and I, I can see that that's the way it works. Um, but I didn't get a sense of there being a sort of musical logic between one bit following on to the other, onto the next. And maybe I'm just missing that. i um, be interested to hear what you think. Um, but on, on the bar, um, so I'm sitting next to this woman who has tried to educate me on classical music. She knows a lot about it. Um, it's hard work. Um, but um, I, you know, maybe I'll get there. But I, I, I was really interested in what you said about the um, allemande and the Courant and the sarabande and the gigue. So I, you know, I looked into that, and that, so each of these little pieces has got a French gig, a French dance, an English dance, a German dance, Spanish dance. I didn't hear any of that. I've heard it three times now that all the soup sweets and it kind of flew straight over my head. Um, but I'd be interested to, you know, maybe I just need to hear it another 20 times or something for that to come in. But be interested to hear more about how important that sort of structure is to making sense of it. Um, but just Briefly, I'd say um, there's a brilliant book called Performing Music in the Age of Recording by Robert Phillip, which talks about classical um, you know, orchestras, um, before that you could hear, you record um, performances and play them again and again. They, they go into a town, they had one chance to sort of make their hit, um, and uh, they'd sort of slightly play some things up, and so, uh, uh, exaggerate them and so on to sell it to the audience. And I felt um, this afternoon, I heard the Yo-Yo Ma version that you were talking about at the Royal Albert Hall. And I thought he was doing that, it suddenly got it. And there's, it was making, it was like He was like he was telling a story rather than it just being an exercise. And I sort of, it started to make sense to me. It felt like I was being on a journey with a purpose, with interesting landmarks on the way, even if I wasn't quite sure where I was gonna end up. So thanks for exposing me to that. And do you
1: want to say, since you're, I'm muted. I think it
4: seems how we're both, both on at the same time. I wanted, it was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the introduction to Lachenmann. I I, I, I I, tried to listen to it several different times in different frames of mind um, and it does require a certain level of commitment I think to sit down and, and really appreciate it but it definitely pays off. What I was going to ask you was, do you always find, do you, do you have to be in the same state of mind every time you approach the piece? Do you approach the piece in different moods? And does it, despite the fact that this, this, the, the score is so prescriptive, does it then, do, are you expressing, are there minute differences, or big differences, in the way that you find yourself expressing the sounds that Lachenmann has prescribed? And also, does it, when you, have you experienced different responses from different audiences when you've played it? Because obviously what you, what you have to commit to listening to one of Lachemann's sort of pieces, be it a quartet or, or sort of solo cello piece, obviously it must, despite the fact that it's, it's concrete, music concrete and it's designed, it's supposed to be illicit specific responses, have you experienced very wide, wide ranging responses from both yourself and the audiences when you've played the pieces?
0: Do
1: you, do you want to come back on anything yet, Gabrielle? Or, um, now, somehow you're muted. Uh, hang on, I've got to unmute you. Uh, no. There we go. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much
2: um, for saying all those very kind things. Um, I. Again, um, to, to make a couple of points clearer I suppose, I'm also an improviser and I think there's a huge difference between improvising and creating your own sound worlds, which I'm absolutely about. I think what Helmut was complaining about by Bad Replicas are students that went to Harvard to study with him which felt that they only could compose like him. And I think that I should have been clearer about because that for him is not what he's about as a musician. He's about developing individuals, having their own voice. And if that came genuinely from them, that they saw and heard sound differently, then I think that was very encouraged. But there was definitely a fashion at the time for people writing. I think there always has been, you know, when I studied composition myself, it was very fashionable to uh, about surrealism and about Schoenberg, and everyone had to be able to write the most perfect note, note row, whether you wanted to or not. And for me, a lot of music in the late 90s all sounded like that prescribed London Symphonietta sound with your flutter tongue alto flute and your little crotales. And you know, I certainly wasn't particularly wanting to write that music myself, it was what was expected. And what I find so exciting about being a a, a, a musician as a performer of contemporary music now is that I see scores sent in with key signatures again. We didn't see key signatures for years and I get so happy and I just think that's fine and then I also get presented music which is very graphic still and I really enjoy it. I play an electric cello too and I absolutely love what gets sent to me. So I think now is that exciting time that, you know, thankfully we are living in an age where we're sharing all the time. I have friends creating albums in Seattle at two o'clock in the morning and, you know, I'll have them when I wake up and it's just great to have that, you know, we're not waiting for CDs to arrive in the post a couple of weeks later. So I think that's all been kind of part of that. Um, Trying to remember all the different points, but with the Bach, um, It's interesting, again, your point, because I also find that people, because I obviously work in um, pop and jazz and rock music quite a lot too. That's what sort of pays my bills. And I always have learned so much more from working with open-minded, non-classical musicians who know so much more and are not shocked. And I find that always very exciting because it always opens my mind. I remember meeting the drummer Peter Erskine from Weather Report, and I was sort of embarrassedly sort of talking down about what I was doing, thinking I should just be talking about Joni Mitchell. And I said, oh, I'm playing some Zanarkis, you know, uh, next week, he's just this kind of of crazy composer. He was like, oh, I love Zanarkis's music. And then went on to educate me and told me that his sister actually dated Zanarkis or something at college, and I was totally blown away. So it's about kind of, for all of us, I think, about understanding. I think it's what Wendy, you know, went to, to as well. It's, and I think, again, what you just said, let's leave it up to the performers and Lackerman to get bogged down with the detail of the ideology, of what he was writing from, and about what technical challenges I have got to do in order to play this piece. And I can tell you that the way I learnt this piece was with as much seriousness and love as I learnt the Ratman and Off cello sonata. I don't approach it, obviously technically I have to approach it in a certain way, but that's just to be able to release myself from the the obstacles of the score but they're not roadblocks they're just obstacles so if I can then relate to you an experience which again Anne does change like it would do if I played bronze every time I'm then trying to give you an experience as performer it it does matter what I'm feeling in my state of mind because that's what makes it live and that's what makes the experience and I think that's also to the detriment of Lackerman because it's not music that you can get to know in a sense like other contemporary music where you can listen to, for example, gosh, I don't know, um, George Benjamin's opera Palimpsest, which is, you know, also one of his pieces, Palimpsest, which I really enjoy. Now there's a recording of that and I can get to know it as an audience member after the first time I heard that in Paris, I think it was, and it can grow with me. But with Helmet's music, it is very much in the moment. And it's about the tiny nuances. And then it's as an audience, certainly, and I have had very different reactions, Anne, again, of walkouts from the Royal College of Music, of these students who, you know, I was you are in a very old-fashioned institution, you know, it's part of the establishment. And it's interesting that we are still being taught, it's probably a whole other subject, by teachers who not necessarily are involved in the profession in the same way I am or my student body were. Um, They had very different constraints than them. Today for example if you play in the BBC Symphony Orchestra you have to know extended technique on your instrument because with fundraising you will only get a concert if you're promoting a contemporary piece. So you know, now it's much more part of our profession to learn and educate ourselves as performers that we can play anything. So I think it's that mixture of allowing us, the performer, to have the responsibility, allowing it to wash over you and not worry about, you know, understanding. Just thinking, does it touch me or not? Which is a very basic emotion. And I think that's what I comes down to me, is that genre... And that's never been important. And I and I do credit, as I said at the beginning, of my childhood for ha- being the sponge as I was. And you know, and there was plenty of children who weren't who are professional cellists grown up now who always roll their eyes when there's a contemporary piece. And I think again, it's that context of where it's come into your life is really important.
1: Great. That's. That's really useful, um, good, interesting answers. So I've got um, three more, three people who with their hands up. So I think what I'll do is ask each of them to sort of say what they want to say, and then um, let you come back on all of those. And then we'll sort of, depending on the time left, I'll just open it up for a free for all and see how long people want to hang out. Um, sure. Not the pub experience, but uh, still a good one, nevertheless. Um, okay, this is better. You're next. There you go. Where are you okay thank you so much it was wonderful i really enjoyed it thank you um
4: you talked about uh, maturity your maturity in approaching a piece so if you could uh, briefly explore that and then i wonder if you think that uh, the audience need maturity uh, because you know this is high art, and i heard the papano once say that uh, opera um, you know, can be appreciated by by older people. So when you are young, you're not ready to appreciate opera. So I wonder what you think about this maturity,
1: um, you know, aspect of the listener. That's really interesting points. Yeah, very interesting question. Um, okay, uh, Jenny. Uh, let me just see if I can unmute you unmute. Unmute yourself, maybe. Jenny. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Good. Well done. Yeah.
5: Many thanks, Gabriella. That that was very inspiring. Um, I was interested when you mentioned electronic music. And I remember some time ago going to a so called electronic concert. Um, but it was very, very much like the Lachman, in that it was a number of different objects that were being played directly in front of a microphone. And and, and perhaps the best example of it was a cactus. And they played the the, um, prickles, whatever it is, on the cactus. And I remember a number of these sounds, they were water instruments as well. A number of them were extremely interesting. Um, And you got involved, you got very involved in trying to pick out um, the the differences in sound and so forth. But I can quite honestly say, despite the interest and the excitement of some of the sounds, it, it didn't inspire emotion. It inspired intellectual interest rather than an emotional connection. So I found, and I suppose in some ways I found that when I listened to the piece that um, you, you'd provided for us to listen to. Um, but in 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 terms of your very wide experience, obviously, of, of music, um, where, do, where do you see this this kind of sound music um, fitting in um, just in terms of contemporary music, you know, somebody said, "Well, this was composed, you know um, well, certainly more than 50 years ago." Um, so it, are there developments in it? Are, are there other people taking this
1: type of music further? Thanks very much. Interesting. Okay, I've got ooh, more people's uh, hands up now. Claire, then Alex, then Mo. So Claire, unmute. Yep, there you go.
6: Um, that was a masterclass, Gabby, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I. Okay, I'm going to bring politics in now.
0: <laughs>
6: <laughs> Guess what? Um, one of the things about the inaccessibility of somebody like Lachman it seems to me apart from the intellectual over the emotional which you will reflect on because people have asked you is that in art and politics you're often in a situation where you feel as though um there's a language being spoken to people who understand it so in the contemporary period for example if you're au fait with the uh way that critical race theory works you know what's being talked about or if you're au fait with you know postmodernist discourse you, you know what's uh being spoken about but for a for jo- majority of people they haven't got a clue and the problem with somebody like Lachman is it feels to me as though you can't just listen to it unless you're au fait with certain i mean you can listen to it but you the significance of it feels As though they don't—it's not—it's not not inviting you to listen to it in that sense, and that it's for a group of people that will get it. Now, that's partially my philistinism, but I wanted—it's—it's definitely part of a broader problem of a kind of a a, a small elite talking to each other, and I can see that as a musician, he has a huge amount to say, but I'm not sure, and that's what you know how audiences are meant to receive it. Having said that, it's also true that Bach might appear to be easy to listen to, and in some ways is, but are we really listening? Because often it's simply listened to as kind of pleasant music. You know, if you're not au fait with the classical traditions or you don't really know what's going on, and I am an amateur when it comes to classical music, but I know that I kind of only listen to it superficially probably I mean you know I've, I've become more accustomed to understanding it a bit more but it's it's like a pleasant thing without me having any depth to it so it gets me onto my final question which is about accessibility and I suppose and opening up this world to people um, because there's also then a conversation about classical music and that could be Bach or Lachemann which is to suggest that not everyone is invited in And that actually you already feel before you try that you're not okay with it. And when I started listening to classical music, I was intimidated because it was, I was a, a young adult, but with no background in it. And I thought that it wasn't supposed to be for me. And that's the kind of typical chippy northern working class, classic, you know, oh, it's like posh people's music and all the rest of it. And then I quite liked some of it, but I never really felt it was written for me. Now, this is Philistinism of the worst order, but it does seem to me that one of the problems is that if contemporary classical music doesn't even try and reach an audience, that the challenge we have in terms of saying classical music is not for a particular group of people, but is universal, is not helped by music that feels as though it's a conversation with a very few people that will understand it and not accessible to all. And I don't suggest that they go pop, but is there a self-conscious exclusion there as well, which is unhelpful.
1: Okay. Um, Alex, unmute. There you go.
6: Uh, I
7: think Claire just asked my question, but in a slightly better way, but I'll, I'll try and put my spin on it. Um, Gabby, what I get from you is a real, a passionate urge to communicate music to everybody. And I, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, you think that anybody can understand this music and love it, I hope. But it seems to me that um, there is an ambivalence or, or maybe a, a less committed sense of that from people who, other people who teach music. So I remember there was a government initiative a couple of years ago about, rather than learning an instrument, you would learn to sing, because in some ways, producing noise from your vocal cords is easier than learning an instrument. So I wonder if there is a, a, what's your experience of kind of educating music in that way? Do you you think there is um, maybe a lack of ambition to impart the love that you have from other, you know, coming from other people? Does does that make sense? Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, Mo i not yet, Mo.
8: No. Hi Gabby, That was I found that completely in, uh, inspirational. Um, I'm a fiddle player myself, although no, no, nowhere near your standard. What I loved about it was um, the fact that, you know, the instrument is made from all these kind of natural materials, the cat-cut uh, skin and the wood and all the rest of it, and it kind of brought it back to that kind of naturalistic feeling in the sound as well, so I absolutely adored that. But I adored it because it was um, because I knew it was a cello and I knew I'm familiar with the sound that a cello normally makes, and I suppose I'm sort of. My, my first question is kind of: Do you think you have to love the sound of the cello as it's traditionally played in order to kind of really feel inspired by by, by um, the kind of uh, uh way of uh, method of bringing the sound out of the instrument? And my second question is a little bit related to what uh, Claire and Alex have already said, but I I worked with Robin Schalkowski, who you you may have heard of, she's a percussionist, uh, in the kind of music concrete style and she plays the cactus and uh, on front row she played it once and and she's absolutely wonderful. And um, the project that I managed was her playing with young percussionists who were just on the start of that journey and they were inspired to hear her play, but when it came to the actual facilitation of the workshops and all the rest of it, she um, she she didn't bring them alive. She brought the music alive for herself, but she didn't bring these young musicians alive. It was almost like she, she wanted, I shouldn't have said her name really, but it was almost like the exclusivity of what she did. She didn't want to share in a sense. It just wasn't inspirational at all. So, uh, uh, I mean, I just wonder, have you found that the more avant garde, more experimental, the more that kind of shrouding in the that, that kind of um, stuff that Claire was talking about, all the intellectualizing it in order to not bring out what I think is like you, probably that everybody can make music and everybody can make sound. Um, so I just kind of riffing on what Claire and Alex have already said, really, but thank you for that. It was wonderful. Thank
1: you. Well, okay. And finally, uh, Joel.
9: Hi, I really enjoyed hearing about your journey and uh, it's so fascinating. And you obviously speak with such passion. Um, I'm also really interested in this balance between, I suppose, the intellectual side and the feeling, that thing between, you know, the notes on the page and the mathematics of it, of what you see. Um, Somebody else mentioned earlier about how prescriptive the instructions were and I suppose there's a couple of questions around um, I think what makes that difference between you know the notes played and then the feeling that you actually put into it you know what makes somebody the the difference between the way different people play it. I did also want to um, say I thought it was really interesting what Claire was saying about the intellectual and accessibility because that's something I also felt when I first um sort of heard a lot of electroacoustic and experimental music. I used to work at an East London venue that a lot the extra um, a lot of musicians played at and I had a little bit of a epiphany I think and um, I, and really sort of grew to enjoy stuff that at first I just sort of took as noise and um, and the other thing I wanted to just say partly into response to a few other people is um, I've worked a lot on with composers who work around film and music so it was really interesting to hear about Lachman talking about Morricone because actually he was quite experimental and yes. would make up sounds and I thought that was quite interesting but also the broadcaster Matthew Sweet wrote an article um, and he was talking about how people uh, listen to avant garde music all the time in film. People who say that they hate avant garde music, but will, you know, you only have to think about 2001 A Space Odyssey and Ligeti. And I think the last point I wanted to make about that was um, I saw something, uh, uh, the Barbara Hannigan's piece, uh, which is the dance macabre with Sir Simon Rattle conducting, and she sings the Ligeti, And uh, it made me laugh. I mean, I thought it was humour and I think that's that's something as well about how people often take a lot of the very experimental avant-garde music very, very seriously. But sometimes it has that visceral reaction for me that's actually, you know, I suppose quite giddy in a sense as well.
1: Great, thanks. Okay, Gabriella, over to you. Wow, (laughs) am I there?
2: Yep. As, as always, um, with Academy of Ideas, I always learn far more from the people asking the questions than from anything else. So, thank you for, for truly listening and, and challenging, you know, which is really important. Um, so, to talk about, I'm going to try and remember um, the key points. Talk about maturity first. It's, we we're obsessed. At the moment in music and pretty much everything with with the young and youth and um and and in terms of the virtuosity of playing um for example I, i can give you an example of someone who i believe sheku the cellist who has everything you know he's someone that truly feels and his maturity as a musician is way beyond his years. Um, but we, that can also go very wrong. And, you know, people can get exploited very young. And with with Bach, especially, there's so many cellists that won't touch it or record it, rather, till at least their 50s. And, um, and I sort of understand that because I think your relationship with this piece changes throughout your years as, you know, everyone has a relationship. I, I know I was a very different person age 20 than I was when I was 30 and I'm about to turn 40. And, you know, it's, it's, you can see that change and how you evolve. And because the suites are so as, as a blank canvas, because as I mentioned earlier, we don't have the autograph. We don't have Bach telling us what to do which is really unusual so that gives us that flexibility of interpretation and with maturity it becomes a responsibility so we listen I think um I think an immature ear is a very exciting one and that's when we have our best chance um to be throwing everything me listening to Don Giovanni, for example, the Mozart opera, when I was really young, I was genuinely terrified when the Commodore came to life and swept you know, Don Giovanni away. I just remember being really spooked. And again, I, I get chills as an adult, but I've done the work to know it's, on, it's in the theater. It didn't really happen, you know? Um, and sometimes that takes away that visceral impact that it had done as a child. So I think there is there is something to be said for waiting. And I think my teacher did have a good point because I think I would have played them technically, but I probably should have waited till I had something to play about too, you know, and that's the beauty of life and growth and what we all do, you know, we need to live. I have friends who have gone on big tours with massive rock bands who write, write albums and they're always on tour buses and they've got nothing really to write about. They have to live a normal life for six months to generate the material, to then write a new album. And I think that very much goes towards our relationship with the Sweets as well. And um, and I remember Casals, I think, you know, played them famously every morning before breakfast and still was learning. And that was his point, you're always learning. And I think anything that we go down the route of discriminating children to have early experiences with music as I do know happened and still happening um, is really dangerous because that is the formative years where you don't build up mental blocks which are very right. I mean when music education was free and you know was alive people would have lessons on how to listen to music back in the 60s and 70s that was a bit more common for state schools you know and I think just to be exposed and to, to be told it's okay you know it's okay to be challenged it's okay not to understand and to have that in schools that everyone is exposed, whether they're beginning to become a professional musician or not, but what it's doing is it's preparing you to be a, a, a listening member of an audience, um, which is, is again, a gift. And I think it's not just Claire that's had that experience and it's, as a professional musician, it always breaks my heart to hear that because it, it does, it's a very difficult block Um, and it's a difficult thing to to shift and that's not anyone's fault but I'd say if anyone's to blame it's again the music establishment because we have these you know elitist like you know it's just such a gory word but there is truth in it and we all struggle with that especially communicators like me who as a professional musician, my choice is generally about whether I enjoy something or not. And I'm, I'm in a luxurious position that I, I get to make that choice at all um, because, of course, a lot of the time I'm playing music that I don't particularly like, and that's OK too, but it's difficult. So to be able to, to have that relationship with music where I personally would really enjoy someone to hear it, you would hope then that the listener can have that same relationship about being open and i suppose my my journey with contemporary music is about mixing it up because to be honest and you've got a great point here Claire. you know within contemporary music lackerman is not particularly loved (laughs) so within the you know the niche within the niche it's a difficult composer and for performers especially and to go to that political place, it costs a lot of money to put on a piece of Lackermann because we have a lot of rehearsals. We have to find musicians, you know, that want to actually spend the hours to relearn their instruments in order to then give it the performance um, that it deserves, which is effortless because it's only then that we can communicate to you how we can communicate what we've learned in Western music. Which has been three hours a day. Now I haven't spent three hours a day learning to make my bow go upside down and make a strange sound. That's taken time on top. So the cost of putting on that piece is is you know is expensive. And again, in different countries, as someone talked about, it has reactions. You know, in Germany, you know, again, it's it's um, considered a little old-fashioned. I think music where it fits in someone talked about you know, how it's going to last. And there's a lot of composers that are being played today I don't think probably will last. And it's for lots of reasons. For example, you know, Michael Tippett, who died um, a few years back now, his music is not being played as much as it was when he was alive. And it's lots of reasons, because it's really tricky. And it does take time. And there's nothing quite like having a live composer at a premiere and that becomes easier to move on to. So Harrison Birtwistle, I mean, Gawain had a huge impression on me um, when I was a child, but then I went to see Mask of Orpheus at English National Opera, which had unbelievably colourful designs and set designs. And it was really fancy, but I found the music slightly turgid and a bit gray and old fashioned and actually, as much as I really respect Harry, he's not got the same kind of ears as Helmut has. He wouldn't be able to pick up the tiny detail in what is considered, you know, in the profession as sort of paper music. It looks very impressive in the manuscript, but when it comes alive, does it really touch you? And a lot of this music doesn't. And that's okay too. And it's okay to, you know not find something you know moving and musical um and time will of course tell as you know there was lots of quite second rate mozarts around that we don't hear of and we hear of mozart and that will naturally happen by selection over the over the years but yes it's interesting to see where helmet's music will fit in but i believe because of his aesthetics and what he understands and what he's trying to communicate, what makes it musical is is the difference. And actually if you look at the school carefully, I remember working with him, there was a little bit where I think I played a demonstration of, it's kind of in it's in a walt- walt- waltz time. So it goes da 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 one, da-da-da-da, da. Now, if you're approaching that and you don't know that, you would probably play it strict, but because he put it in context of a very old fashioned thing, I I like the context. And I thought, oh, it's a dance. Of course it's a dance. So I will then communicate that to the audience, knowing that information. And going back to Bach and the dances, you know, and finding finding that beat, finding that relationship with the music and almost taking it back to basics and making sure that your Quran feels like a Quran and dancing and learning how to communicate. That's all really, really important. The, the point about the cactus and about the electronic music, that's an interesting one. And again, I, I agree, you know, and this is what makes Helmut's music more interesting to me than electronic music. Um, although I've changed, I, I was a bit of a snob and I've had experiences for example working with unbelievable electronic music composers and DJs and I've been sort of slightly turned round but again it's because I've probably been very lucky that I've been working with very very good people who have put in all the same history and knowledge as I put into learning the cello and that expresses it to me. So I am. Um, Lackerman's music becomes interesting to me because there's two things. There's a human involved and there's a real instrument involved and it's that relationship about reinventing a sound which could be easily played with one button on a computer for a sample. Just that motion is, is a different experience. Now people who are very much into that would argue that actually this is you know it's interesting that where computers get involved and again that's probably a whole other debate you know but for me that's what makes us expressive because I'm choosing in a live situation about how loud what I had for breakfast what's going on in my love life what's going on in the news all of the things that make me an artist I can communicate that to you. So I think we need to let go of what's actually coming out of the instrument, and allow that to just kind of, as we would say, you know, when we go to see, um, you know, I've, I've gone to the Picasso at the RA quite a few times. And when you move through the rooms and you see the, the drawings, the, and then we get further and further and then we see the, the women and the weeping women and how it becomes so abstract and how I can still try my, you know, to not forget the drawings and the studies and to understand and how, how much that helps me actually having everything together as an appreciator of art. And again, you know, to go back to Claire's point and, and I think Claire and I've talked about this before, it, it sort of does come from the top and it's, it's a very difficult thing for musicians generally to know that, you know, to mention the the G word, the government, I doubt Boris would be able to mention five living composers. I don't think he could, he he could probably name the living painters, maybe a couple, authors probably, maybe a couple of, you know, uh, theatre, playwrights. And again, this is someone that had very elitist education, as we know. And so there's definitely something going wrong because, you know, if you have, you know, the man who's had everything, um, and I'm speaking for someone that got sent away from nine years old, and I wouldn't put me in charge of the country because of the, the lack of things that it gives me, um, but it, it's a, it's a concerning thing. And we have to, again, this has to be changed from grassroots, I think. And I think, us as composers and instrumentalists, about how we present music and making it acceptable for people to not like something and like something. You know, again, concerts are confined spaces, art galleries aren't. If you can walk out of an art gallery within five minutes if you just, you know, something doesn't float your boat, it's very hard to do that in the Royal Festival Hall. And I think um, this is where It's, you know, it's changing, but it's slow. We are very stuck still in our Western tradition. And it's only over time where, in fact, this is getting interesting for music. And I don't want to go into COVID particularly, but we are going to have to rethink everything again. Composers are now not writing for full symphony orchestras as of four months ago. And again where we fit in as artists and, and composers especially, and where Helmut fits in, and this is an interesting chat I had with him about it, he feels very similarly to Benjamin Britten, is that composers responsibility is to be useful, useful. And as the lady he talked about the, um, the fiddler and the percussionist, we have to be useful as musicians. It's not good enough anymore that we are playing at the Wigmore Hall And playing, not really talking, just saying, read the programme notes, here's the piece, and expecting people just to get it, because we do. It's about us, about how we are changing our communication, how we are doing that with children, and how we are setting up the next generation to be open-minded.
1: Mariel, that's fantastic. Really, really interesting and some very important points at the end. And I want to be completely opportunistic because actually what you were just saying feeds in with the event that's happening next week on the 6th of August, which I'm hoping people will come to, on the future of the arts. And actually what you're saying, I think one of the things that um, you know, thinking, trying to think positively about a very difficult period is it does give the potential to opening up a really new debate about where the arts go whether it's the music and the problems that you the challenges it faces you know versus the visual arts or as well as the visual arts and the theatre i think there's a lot of scope for that but i'm going to unmute all now to give you the round of applause you deserve <laughs> yes wow. thank you yes <laughs> thank you. that that really was a fantastic really, really enjoyable. I just wanted to, before we finish up, I just wanted to remind people, and I think um, Alistair will put up the link again, about um, making a donation to the, the Academy of Ideas, because the kind of discussions we have here, which is sort of cross the, the um, you know, create a crossover between kind of really thinking seriously about the arts as arts, and the political context in which we are living at the moment, the political and social and economic context which live, live at, the, at the moment. Those discussions are separate, but they're also not separate, and I think to the extent any of us have passions about, um, about the arts in particular, you know, we can't really avoid the political context. Um, so I really, really appreciate what you've done today in terms of giving us a kind of real <laughs> in music instead someone like me it was a complete revelation. Um, I'm really, yeah, it was fantastic. So thank you, Gabrielle. I'm just gonna leave it unmuted now. And anybody who wants to say anything, I know there was a couple of hands that I kind of chose to ignore, but um, yeah, let's just see what goes.
3: Uh, it's Harley here. I was just gonna, um... Throw in, well, there was, uh, it got reminded by, I think it was Claire's point, and also what Gabriella was uh, saying about exposing children as, as young as possible to the broadest range of, uh, of material. Um, brilliant thing to do. Um, reminded us of, uh, of the, uh, our son's music school teacher at primary school, who, um, you know, when uh, Anne mentioned there were some great free classical concerts up in town. Uh, said, oh, well, we wouldn't want to, you know, um, take them to those because it will just, you know, it will just confuse them. Um, (laughs) So, and and then Casper's now, our son's now at secondary school and the music department has has sort of collapsed over the course of three years as they've gone from having an actual proper music course to performance to um nothing and GCSEs just been dropped so um I, I know from i work in education so i know that it's a bit of a broader problem quite a lot of a broader problem um, anyway so it's a bit of a downer really for a brilliant discussion
4: all is not lost he's a color strings kid as well oh my not
10: <laughs> on the on the on the upside um i'm i'm new to music uh, can, you, can you can you hear me yeah, very well. Yeah. And, and uh, I've only, ooh, since lockdown, have any interest at all in classical music, and suddenly I've got switched on. I don't know what a quaver reason a crotchet is, quite frankly. Um, but um, what, I have, what, what I do think is, a bit like your new way of thinking, um, I think there is a, a much bigger role for technology in, in the way that classical music presents itself. So, for example, I've taken on a a, a very cheap, ridiculously cheap subscription to the Gothenburg Symphony Orchestra, uh, and I'd be prepared to pay more. Um, And and I do think that I would have to travel quite a long way uh, and stay overnight to get to a performance. Um, And that involves expense and time. Uh, And there are many people like me who'd be like that. And I just think there's a whole ocean of possibilities that the classical music world could use to 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 get more people involved and to watch it and actually to fund it as well.
2: Yeah. That's yep. a really good point just just to pick up on that Chris our classical music approach since lockdown has been horrible. I mean Wigmore Hall, live concerts, some of the greatest artists of our time, Mitsuko Ushido, um, everyone, Sophie Bevan, Stephen Huff. I think there oh, was,
0: yeah. Yeah, did you
2: see how many people, I mean, there was at some point, I think 22,000 people was watching Stephen Huff's wow.
10: concerts. Wow. I think
2: he raised about 700 quid.
10: Oh yeah. And
2: you know, for all of our halls which are struggling, had they even just said it's ten pounds or t- five pounds a ticket, we only got fifty-five thousand people watched their first live stream, and again there was no tickets sold, so the donations were small. And I think the problem was with lockdown that we all were so distraught that our tours were cancelled and we were playing in our bedrooms and filming and saying, oh, we're so sad. People weren't thinking about monetizing. So then when people were then giving away free concerts, um, that became more normal. So it's like, well, why should we pay to watch that? Yeah. And I feel like classical music, we've been terrible at this time and slow in every other way in technology, as you've said.
10: Yeah, and I hadn't, I've learned from an article that um, even say the London Philharmonic, Earns peanuts from their recordings on, uh, you know, on the mainstream MP3, uh, you know, the, the platforms, mm. um, and and somehow classical music has got itself into a state as an industry as a whole where it's giving it all away, and um, and and I know there's a there's a, a dichotomy between popularity and what people will pay, but there's also an element where if the whole industry sort of competes downwards, then you end up not getting a lot. Um, and I, I think the, the, the marketing and the strategy and working together, even across Europe or the world, um, needs to be really re- rethought. And, and I, could, I think could be a lot better handled.
2: So many people say this, especially people new to, classical music who come in and look at our industry and see how we work. And I think this is what the last few months is proving that it simply needs to change. You know, um, we have a huge problem with now the government's injection with the, music, with the money for the theatres. It's all wonderful and should be celebrated, but we're not being supported as freelancers. So many people are exempt and there's simply not going to be anyone to play in these theatres next year. If we don't get the financial support mm. to get us through till January and it's it is a you know it's a huge huge problem but again in this country I think at the moment as as we can see from what's going on culture feels like it's a bit further down the list and in Germany in New Zealand in France the billions that have been invested in culture just mm. shows us the maths just isn't the same mm-hmm. and I think We've never felt so depreciated um, by, by the government as we do now. And it's, it is, it's a really tricky one because even within our industry, there's so many anomalies. I mean, I get friends who do different jobs who say, so wait a minute, you're going to work tomorrow. You don't quite know where it is. You don't know how much you're going to get paid. And you don't know who it's for. I'm like, well, yeah. And that's our normal life, this is this case of just turning up and just playing, you know. And I think there's so many strange things that quirks that have lasted for so many hundreds of years. For example, even in the recording industry, when I go and do a film score, you don't know how much you're going to get paid and you don't want know what it is. But if you ask, you'll never get booked again. So you have these and you just think people who work in businesses like, how does that even financially
0: work? But it's just that's what it is. It's madness. It's totally madness. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean, I, it, it is one of the things, isn't it, about, I think, mean, because Claire was sort of talking about her own, you know, Philistinism, but it is that sense that you feel like the world, well, certainly British culture. I mean, I think it's never been known for its, um, you know, its kind of real appreciation of the arts. Uh, you know, there's, you know, like the French, t- you know, will tease the British for their philistinism and the Italians too will sort of, you know, um, point to the British for just not, you know, uh, loving art enough. But um, I think it had, I think this is sort of <coughs> the way education has gone over the last um, you know, two, few decades is it's sort of like, it's, it's driven out the arts so thoroughly at every level that it's sort of, um it turned, you know, first of all, it started talking about, you know, the arts being taught for um, reasons of, you know, social good or employment or whatever. And now it doesn't really even, you know, because it's clear you don't earn very much in the arts, so what's the point of learning them? I mean, that's kind of the way things have developed in education. It's sort of, um, everything is about employment and it's not about really learning the arts as something that just is... You know, part of what makes life wonderful. Um, so I, th- I think there is a sort of lot to answer for. And I suppose that's the thing is that is, is this an opportunity for us to really, you know, re- you know challenge that direction, because it's, uh, it's just not, a, you know, it just is. So I thought that word you used depreciating, you know, it does de- depreciate what artists do, but also what, what life is, I think. Mm
2: at the end of every day where people have been in lockdown, how people survive lockdown? Music, exactly. Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> That's what kept everyone sane, essentially. Yeah.
8: yeah. Can I, sorry, um, yeah. Sorry, sorry <laughs> okay. um, I, I'm just, I'm working on a, a thesis. It's not very well developed, but I just want to kind of throw it at you. Because one of the things I think I haven't worked in participatory arts and participatory music, um, is that there is almost like an anti-elitism within the participatory arts sector. So that, so in terms of classical music and opera, ballet, things like that, there's almost like, um, you know, let's teach people Stormzy rather than Beethoven or, you know, let, let's kind of do rap with the kids rather than teach them to me- read music or, 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 or appreciate, because I remember music classes just... Lit- to classical music, as you would say, just listening before I could even play a note. Um, and that to me seems to be something that's missing. But so for me, what what is the best of art and culture is elitist. It is elite. It's the best that a society ever produces. So there's something of a disparity there between, I think, this anti the elite, you know, the people that can afford the classical music, and a kind of Philistinism within those people that advocate for the arts, um, they seem to not like the kind of classical forms in a way, and they're and, and sort of dumbing down, if you like, and to me that's a bit of a disparity, and I, I think if we could challenge that disparity between what is elitist, as in kept away from the masses, you know, for reasons of snobbery or whatever, and what is elite in terms of the best a society can produce, that could be, be transcendental, as you talked about, then we may have solved that problem. To me, there's a kind of, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, or, uh, it's, not, it's not allowing the children a chance to be challenged anymore. Yeah, um, I think that's really
2: important. And, and that's what art's essentially for too. It's not always going to be easy. And again, you know, there's been some good initiatives like the 10 Pieces Project. I was, I was quite interested because I'd take my kids to see that at the proms and they would have looked at some of the pieces at school And there are sometimes, you know, and it was Stravinsky, it was a contemporary composer living, it was lots of different things. But then I did notice that some of my students, they talk about their GCSE music and there wasn't really a classical piece. And you sort of think, come on, you know, you just have to give people the chance because actually, but you know, if it's presented right and it's a good performance and it's not, you know, kind of shoved aside as like an apology, children, will have a reaction, you know, and it's okay. And, and again, we are trying to get better by having concerts which are specifically for children so they can move around and won't annoy sort of, you know, top price ticket holding adults, children um, who have autism, autism and they're very careful so you don't clap, you do this with your hands so it doesn't upset the children. You know, there are there are some, but I agree that... It's, it's a very difficult thing. And I think children, we have the right, we have you know, sort of the, the duty to, um, to show children um, what's good in every genre and then allow them to make the judgment, not us.
1: Very good, okay. Well, I think probably we've exhausted the topic for now at least. <laughs> And that really was fantastic, Gabrielle. I, I really appreciate you so giving your time for this. Oh, my um, absolute pleasure. I just have
2: always just loved talking about these things. It's so yeah. important, you know. Yeah, we, and it's such a big We're on a different stage, you know, we're on a stage and people are, yeah. you know, there's not that interaction. And again, this has been such a joy of lockdown is having much more conversation
1: and getting yeah. to know that, you know, we all miss each other as well. Yeah but hopefully we'll be able to also see each other again more in the flesh. Uh, I, I for one, I'm certainly going to look out for you in concerts. Thank you. um, Because, yeah, I'd love to, I mean, I love, you know, listening to what you say and I've loved hearing your music um, online, but I'd love to come to a concert when those start up again, so. Thank you, I'll make sure my website's updated. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of semi-employment, retirement. (laughs) Good, okay, well, thank you everybody.
2: Thank
0: you you. you so much everyone I really appreciate it very much Thank you everyone Thank you, you. Bye bye bye